All right, everybody, welcome back to Girls Talk Comics. Now, this is another guestopode or guesticle. I'm going to have the guest decide what we're going to name it today. It's our first guest interview with a creator. And today we have Carla Nappy. Now, Carla is actually a name quite a few of my comic friends recognize. She is a Disney ABC writing program semi-finalist. She's worked in writer rooms and on film TV sets in both New York City and Los Angeles. She's collaborated with Tony Gilroy on Michael Clayton, Adam Brooks on Definitely, Maybe, Aaron Korsh on Suits, Carlton Coos and Carrie Aaron on Bates Motel, and Robert and Michelle King on The Good Wife and Brain Dead. Her writing credits include episode 206, All In of Suits, and the Suits webisode, Mini Mike. Carla developed a comic book series based off her pilot script, Duplicate. She's run two successful Kickstarters for the first three issues of the series, and recently signed with Second Sight Publishing. Currently, Carla is pitching the animated supernatural suspense series, Nabarang, which was created with Filipino-American animator and paranormal expert, Sapphire Sandalo. Really excited that everyone is here with us today, and hopefully you will enjoy. I am really excited that we at Girls Talk Comics are your first lady-led podcast. <laughs> Beyond that was really a great fact. I guess the comics world is pretty male-dominated. Yeah, it's been... I didn't even realize it until we booked, and then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I haven't spoken to any other women. And even when I'm on panels, which you know hasn't has been a minute since I've been on a panel, it, it's, it's usually me and just a bunch of other guys. And I know that there's like a million women out there that do this. Yes. And I was actually talking about that with another podcaster about how it's really easy to connect with and find male creators, but it does seem that a lot of lady type creators are a bit more hesitant or at least harder to access. And I, I want to believe it's because everybody's been horribly burned <laughs> and it's like a self-defense mechanism. Right. Um, but I'm also not a creator and don't know what it's like as you who's putting content out there to be critiqued as such. So, Yeah. the When I took a comic book writing class, it was all men and me and one other woman. And that was it. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I'm hoping that this podcast can contribute to breaking down barriers. I don't expect us to be huge forerunners and smashing down walls, but I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, and as our first creator guest, since we're both lady types, I'm excited. <laughs> no, I am too. I, I, I'm excited to get the a, a woman's perspective on this comic book because I even all the people who well no that's not true i've had i actually have had a few women reviewers of the comic book but i haven't had any women that i've actually had been able to have a back and forth conversation with about the comic book totally so let's talk about this comic book duplicate right, right? Mm -hmm. yes <laughs> give your spiel tell us all about it okay so duplicate is set in the future uh, during a pandemic of all things <laughs> of organ failure it starts, the, the comic starts with Pamela, who's studying to become an attorney. She works as a paralegal and she becomes sick and needs to have her lungs replaced. 
And in this world, when you have to have an organ replaced, you're given what's called a duplicate organ, which is a manufactured organ to replace the one that's failed. But the cost of it is so high, you're sold into indentured servitude. So she finds herself in this world she never expected to be in, having to do this work she never in a million years thought she was ever going to have to do. And, and she's also hearing rumors that the tech has some sort of fatal flaw to it. So she tracks down the scientist who created it, Matt Travers, and tries to get his help. And the story starts to pivot at that point to follow Matt in his journey to figure out what, if anything, is actually wrong with his tech and uncovering what else is being done without his knowledge to something that he intended to be good for the world and not harmful. I love that concept. Uh, and I'm really glad that you reached out to me about it and we connected <laughs> on it. I probably would have missed it in the previews when it was coming out. So I'm really glad you brought it to my attention. I And again, thank you for letting me read the first issue. Because narratively, first things first, I loved how you paced it. And I really loved it focusing on the woman at first and then pivoting to the actual main scientist because you got so engaged to her, or I did as a reader, really connected with her, really invested in her and this injustice. And then watching the conclusion of her story and it transitioning to the next level, I was like, yeah, I want this crime solved. (laughs) I want this problem (laughs) solved. Give me good answers, scientist guy. Uh, I'm really bad at names, and I'll tell you right now. I loved your characters. I just can't retain. Oh, that's okay. It's uh, well. Pamela and Matt. <laughs> Pamela and Matt. Okay. Yes. No, I'm I'm excited about Matt and seeing how the rest of it goes. So it's going to drop. Is it dropping in April? So the first issue drops in April. The first. Four issues are available through the Kickstarter. So mm-hmm. the first two issues are available as like a perfect bound book through the Kickstarter and then issues three and four as their own separate issues. But through my publisher, they're going to be publishing each issue by itself bi-monthly starting in April. So we're in previews world now for the first issue. So yes. that's that's unique to comic book stores because the first issue hasn't been printed by itself before. And I already have it on my pool. It is already <laughs> ordered for me. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I love picking things up at my shop. Not that I wouldn't support the Kickstarter. And if people can find other ways to purchase, do so. There's just something special about going into a store and grabbing your monthly books or bi-monthly books. And I will take whatever hit of that dopamine I can. <laughs> Especially nowadays. We need all the dopamine we can get. Right? Can I comment on the theme a little bit? Yeah. Can I tell you the vibe? Okay. I love Repo, the genetic rock opera. Yes. I love the movie. <laughs> yes. Okay. I totally, when I was reading this, I'm like, this is like Repo yes, and like yes. Repo, man. <laughs> what was that other movie? I think it was called Island. No, it was the one where people made clones of themselves so they could have donor organs or like- Oh, was that the one with Bruce Willis? I don't know if that was Bruce Willis. I- yeah. Repo was like a big- a big influence on this. And I've actually only ever seen it once, but I saw it in a theater. I was working in New York city at the time when it came out and I went to one of these, like, I think it was like opening weekend, like 11 PM sort of screening thing at like this little art house theater in Manhattan. And I was just like, this is epic. I just loved it. And it just stuck with me. (laughs) So good. One, the music is phenomenal, but even the repo men movie with, which I've never seen 
Yeah, Jude Law. I've never seen it. Like I'm aware of it. I I know about it, but I've I haven't watched it. But I'm I'm aware of of the movie and the the, the fact that it's kind of got a similar theme. <laughs> so yeah, this was definitely my own sort of spin on Repo the Genetic Opera and and Minority Report too was a big influence yes. for me. You know, Blade Runner and like all those sorts of dystopian movies that I love. <laughs> yeah, and. This one does strike me more like Repo Men because Repo Men has that uh, cleaner aesthetic than mm-hmm. the Repo Genetic Rock Opera. Right. Um, <laughs> right. It's the same concept. And I, I feel like Repo Men was also like it could be a spiritual sequel or prequel successor. I, I feel like I can watch it after I'm done like completely writing this first arc because it's like I don't 100%. want it to I don't want it to influence me. <laughs> I completely (laughs) respect that. (laughs) But I love that aesthetic. And so reading that, I was immediately engaged with this like clean, nefarious future state where everything is high tech and smooth and sanitized in a sense. Because I think you the colors and the shapes were all very clean and light colored. Mm -hmm. Um, But it had this incredibly dark undertone. (laughs) Yes. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Late stage capitalist organ market. It was very like, it. I just, I kind of love that creepy vibe throughout all of it. Like everything's mildly threatening. It's all cosmetic, but yeah, everything looks like it's awesome, yeah. and yet you can't trust any of it. <laughs> no, no, the entire fear around the disease. Since so many people were, they rejected everyone who had had the second organ or had organs replaced. And it was such a taboo in like that degree of ableism in their world where they're like, you've been contaminated. We're going to fear you forever. It was just this that second class citizen kind of feel. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just... And that that came from growing up as a child during the AIDS epidemic and you know, seeing how people who had it were treated and like this whole, you know, public advocacy to make people understand that you shouldn't be afraid of people with AIDS and all that. So that was like in my psyche from when I was a child and definitely was a big influence on this when I created this. I love that. I mean, that's incredibly sad. (laughs) But at the same time, I love that that narrative is really hitting a lot of comic. Have you read Barbalian from the Black Hammer universe? I haven't. Black Hammer is a great superhero comic if you don't want to read DC or Marvel superheroes. But Barbalian is also fantastic in the fact that it's staged during the AIDS crisis in the United States. Okay. And Barbalian happens to be a queer character in that universe. And so I will have to look that we'll have to look that up. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's really evocative and it's uh, I think already been recognized, I want to say, by the Canadian equivalent of the Library of Congress. They want to go ahead and already put that in their records for LGBT representation. I th- Wait, it's really good. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> you mentioned being influenced by that. And so I wanted to make a recommendation awesome. for that story as well. But as we've already talked, Duplicate's really great. I'm very excited about it. I'm excited to see the rest of it. And I love the aesthetic. Uh, So I'm hoping sci-fi fans, specifically fans of Repo, the genetic rock opera, will pick this book up and read it as well because it's it's pretty great. Yeah, and I've I've been super fortunate with the team that I have. You know, the covers are great. We have you know the theme of someone on the cover with like an organ 
that's basically fallen apart in some way. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a beautiful cover. I love seeing what artists do with medically influenced covers. There was another book called Freeze that was done by Image. And I know I'm making a lot of comparisons to other comics, but this is also like a high praise from me is like it it definitely felt like the same vibe. Like the the cover sold me because it felt like other covers that I had seen from other genres that I loved. And like Freeze had a lot of really creepy medical ones. And then I saw that cover that had this kind of creepy medical vibe. And I was like, this is going to be a good read. <laughs> so awesome. you do have That's a good. very great. That's what tip. I want to hear because I'm trying yeah. to like get stores to to pick <laughs> to pick the book up. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. No, it's it's kind of hard. I think right now during a pandemic. I mean, obviously stores, smaller publishers, but since it's also about a pandemic, <laughs> like how do you feel about the publishing timing for that? Well, so when I did the, so the book was conceived and the first two issues were completely done, you know, years and years before our current pandemic. And Mm -hmm. when I launched the Kickstarter, the first one last year, which covered issue one and two, it was January, you know, and we had heard things, rumblings and things. By the time the Kickstarter ended in February, it was starting to feel a little more threatening, but not quite the level of, oh my God what the F have we gotten ourselves into that we felt, I think by the time like March was rolling around. Um, So it was like the train was already going when I put this out into the world. And once you have that train going, you kind of have to keep, keep up with it no matter what's happening in the world. And then I just happened to kind of stumble on second sight. They had an, there was an article in bleeding cool about them as a new publisher. And I submitted to them and they, we're super excited about the book. So it's, it's definitely a concern for me as a creator, like, oh my God, I have this book about a pandemic who would ever think that we'd actually be in one, especially when I feel like I've gotten stuff eerily correct (laughs) to what we're actually experiencing. Uh, That, you know, definitely wasn't, I mean, I guess that's a sign of good sci-fi that I predicted the world correctly. Job well done. Job, Job well done. Well yes. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a weird, like, are people going to want to read this considering what it's about? But my hope is because the story focuses more on Matt and his emotional journey and not so much on the contagion itself, that that's going to be the thing that keeps readers coming back for more. And I will have to say, having read it in a pandemic, it does feel a bit more like we're at the after part of it in your story. Uh, obviously, it's still impacting lives and people are still feel- feeling the ramifications, but there has been like a cure, an intervention. There is a system set up in place to help people after they get sick, which hasn't been the vibe from the last year for our situation. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so it's a bit easier to kind of sit through because it does feel like you know, you're in the after crisis, right? Like you're... Well, this is where we're coming into this in issue one is that this virus has been around for a few years. Okay. So this isn't something that like just started. So people have have kind of been living with it for a while. And there is a way to not die from it, but it's obviously not an ideal way, which is why Matt is trying to find a vaccine that's proving elusive to him. And that also plays into the mystery of everything that's going on in this world. It's the best kind of 
mystery. Okay, I love a good crime drama. I have been binging Criminal Minds lately, um, <laughs> which I'm also hypercritical of because they do things that I'm like, this case would have been thrown out. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> I overthink it. It's fine. But that mystery, and certainly when it comes to medical mysteries, it, it has a feeling of kind of that supernatural uh, since most of us aren't immunologists. For immunologists out there, I hope you do enjoy a good medical mystery comic book kind of sci-fi question, but I did not study that, so it's all magical to me. <laughs> it's all very <laughs> supernatural, and so this, it obviously is very sci-fi, uh, but certainly with this kind of behind-the-scenes exploitation, this human exploitation um, that's kind of foreshadowed, like exists in the first issue it does make it feel, I don't, I mean, nefarious, I've already said this, but it just like so human manipulated, right? Like that might be, be me projecting my current views of capitalism onto your story. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm looking forward to the rest of the rest of the story. I'm definitely going to be hyping this book up as it gets oh, closer thank to release. You. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I do yeah. end every issue on a cliffhanger. Ooh, that's the best part. That's quality writing right there. Leave me with more questions and answers. <laughs> Smart. Smart. All right. Well, we've talked your book. And obviously, I, I would imagine it's still going to come up through the rest of this episode. And that's fine. Every time, well, you are the first creator guest. So I'm going to be kind of feeling this out with you and seeing what happens. I'd yeah. like to get to know a bit more about creators, kind of like who you are, what you want to share with the rest of the world. Because your life does exist outside of just your job. And I like to, you know, the, that outside of your job also contributes to whatever influences your writing, what makes you happy in the world. And it's kind of what gets my attention. Obviously, I can go on and on about like how great your story is, but that's also kind of weird and it feels a little one-sided. So like, <laughs> right. let's, see, let's see if we have other shared interests, right? Okay. So tell me, how have you been getting through COVID quarantine? Uh, it's it's definitely been rough. Before everything shut down, we were in the process of trying to figure out care for my son uh, because what happened with the first Kickstarter was it took up way more of my time than I had anticipated with the promotions and just keeping on top of everything. And so why it ended up being put in front of a screen uh, way more than he had ever been previously put mm. on the screen. And by the end of the campaign, he went from a kid who we could read to him for hours and hours a day to a kid who didn't want to even look at a book anymore. And that was a big dramatic change that we're still kind of recovering from because of course, you know, right after <laughs> the Kickstarter right. ended within about a month, we found ourselves in a pandemic and our ability to go out and do things was drastically reduced. We, you know, we had state parks. So I was taking him out to state parks every day, but also just mentally, it was completely overwhelming. I would be up until like four or 5am in the morning. Oh my gosh. News and getting like totally freaked out. Like, what does this mean for him? Because, you know, on top of also like, we were just about to like get him into some sort of, you know, hopscotched, uh, hobbled, care program of like my in-laws watching him once a week. And then I had a friend who was going to watch him twice a week. 
And then we were, you know, sort of considering trying to maybe do like a daycare that also did preschool, like on a part-time basis, like twice a week so that I could do my writing without having to put him in front of the screen. And so I could focus just on him when I was with him and not have to have my attention split. Right. And also, so we, my husband and I could spend some time together because we hadn't had any time just to ourselves since Wyatt had been born. We had like one date night <laughs> and that Ooh. was it. And yeah. so it was, it was traumatizing because I was also, uh, I was still nursing him at the time and that ended up, I don't know if the stress for the pandemic or what, or if it was just, you know, it was just time to stop. But like by the time we stopped nursing in September, it had gone from something that was enjoyable for both of us where it was like, Oh, I had this nice like downtime to relax while he nursed and he fell asleep and I could just scroll on my phone or watch a movie or, you know, whatever, just like have a mental minute to myself to, it was making my skin crawl the entire time and I felt uncomfortable and not happy. Mm -hmm. And then he became unhappy because I'm making him stop nursing before he's ready. (laughs) So it was just like, was it the stress? Cause that's a whole thing with nursing. If you're like really stressed, it's like, you can't make milk basically. Yeah. So it was just this, this confluence of stuff. Plus I have, you know, I have anxiety and depression and that of course was exacerbated with everything and trying to find help and just, you know, we went from like this where we thought we were going to have all this help with Wyatt and trying to get him ready for preschool because he should have been in preschool starting in September too. We're just all three of us home all the time, no matter what. And for my husband, it hasn't been a huge change because he was already working from home for like years and years before this, his job was home. But for me, it was a much bigger change because I used to go out with Wyatt every day. You know, we'd go to the playground or we'd go to like, we had a membership to like this local science center for kids, or, you know, I would just take them to the mall and let them play in the indoor playground, you know, or we'd visit with friends and family or whatever to like, I remember when we first started to hear about it being airborne, all of a sudden it was like, I wasn't even keeping our front door open anymore. Cause we live in a row house. We have two other houses right next to us. So it was like, when the people outside would be standing there smoking, all of a sudden I started to get like, oh my God, their air is coming into our house. I have to keep my door closed. <laughs> so yeah. why it went from like, I want to go out every day, every day, every day to nowadays, like today when we tried to just get him out to go for a drive, it turned into like, he had a total meltdown because he didn't want to get dressed and he didn't want to leave the house he never wants to leave the house anymore. We have like three feet of snow outside and we can't even get him outside to play in it. So it's been this like crazy roller coaster, especially for like me and Wyatt <laughs> that we're still sort of like holding on to. And I just keep hoping like, okay, I hope by the summer we'll be vaccinated. And, you know, maybe by like Christmas we can all start breathing again and like, you know, visiting people again and not having to be worried every time we go out that we're going to get sick. Right. I can relate to Wyatt a lot, though, on not wanting to go out. I used to be pre-pandemic. I I used to be somebody who was out of my house for 12, 15 hours a day. I just loved being out. And now that I've been inside and the idea of entertaining a bunch of strangers face to face like I used to. It yep. sounds exhausting. Because I, I have for years worked two jobs. I work my professional nine to five, which has been 
either disability services or mental health related, and then usually a retail job at the same time because having a discount to support your hobbies, peak reason to stay. <laughs> That's an awesome reason. Yep. Yeah. Like, that's why I still work at the comic shop. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was always out at like trivia nights and things. So now whenever I'm home and I've changed into my sweatpants and, you know, taken my bra off for the day, <laughs> like, <Yep. laughs> I don't want to go out. My housemate, uh, I had to go get us groceries the other day and he had to like roll me off the couch so I could get the momentum to go. Because <laughs> like, I was so, I was just like, I don't want to leave. It was icy. You know, it was the beginning of kind of a icy snowstorm, which was yes. the best well, time to go. And I was like, yep. I don't I don't want to. And he finally was like, no, you have to go. And I went instead of him because he has to commute 45 minutes to work. So it was just... Oh, yeah, that's rough when you have to yeah, make a long it, commute to work. Yeah. It was just fair that when I have to drive five minutes, I should go to the grocery store than <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> his hour and a half. So I can feel Wyatt on that one, just being like, no. Yeah. It's- and it's everyone's like, oh, he must be out like every day playing in the snow. And I'm like, no. Like, no, he literally no. has zero interest in going out of the house. And he's also, he's always been very, you know, close to me. And now it's like even more so, you know, sometimes he goes through these phases where he just like, he doesn't even want to look at Joe, like poor Joe, he'll like get off of work and want to play quiet. And he'll be like, I don't want data. <laughs> but it's like, I, that's the only time I get to do any of my own stuff is when my husband's done at eight o'clock or later, if he has to work late. And then I maybe get like, maybe two to three hours if I'm lucky, if Joe can stay awake that long to try to, you know, keep up with my Kickstarter, work on the next issue, go over whatever other projects I'm working on, which I have a couple that I'm juggling, and then just like try to decompress. And some days I'm just like, I just need to sit here. Yeah. And then the next day I'm in a panic because I didn't <laughs> I didn't get enough done. <laughs> right. Yes. Can relate that I really empathize with that. When I was in grad school, I was also working full and part-time while doing internships and classwork. Can completely relate. I say completely in the idea of how stressful and almost suffocating that kind of workload is. I don't have children, so (laughs) can't relate to the parenthood part of it. But I am sending you all the vibes and support that I can emotionally through the internet in your direction because that, that <laughs> is a lot it's to like do. I just want to sit and focus on Wyatt but it's like sometimes I just need a minute to myself and it's very hard mm-hmm. and I think this is probably a, a lot of parents are feeling this it's like they just don't have that minute to themselves anymore because if it's not yeah. catching up on whatever else they need to do when their kids finally asleep it's also just keeping up mentally with the absolute insanity that is our world right now and not just the pandemic stuff but you know the political landscape which thankfully has quieted down so <laughs> it feels like that's not yeah. as much of a struggle it's not as pressing it's yeah. not as pressing yeah it doesn't feel as pressing as it did before which is which is good yeah <laughs> one less thing to worry about <laughs> yeah it's like it's still there but you know you're like i can watch you like every other day rather yeah. than every minute of every day. Yeah. So, I, my big yeah. thing now is like when I go out, I because I can't go to the stores. If I, if I go to a store, it's in the evenings. 
my husband goes to the stores in the mornings if he, whenever he goes grocery shopping and everyone is good about wearing their masks. Something about when I go in the evenings, no one wears their masks Ooh. and no one does anything about it. So it feels like extra fraught on the rare times that I do go out because I'm being confronted with people who think that this is a hoax and won't do the, the right thing and wear a mask. You know, I've always had a theory about morning people versus evening people Mm -hmm. and how people who can just get going in the morning are, I want to say, a little bit more composed because That's my husband's theory too. Yep. Okay. (laughs) We might be onto something. Now, that that is not a jab at anybody who's an evening person. I am an all-day kind of person, so like I can vibe with both groups, but there's there's just something a little bit more like peppy about a morning person and willing to be more polite. I don't know, like comply with social niceties (laughs) at 8 a.m. Maybe it's not wanting to argue before noon. I don't know. Maybe. um, That could be. That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I used to work in a grocery store and those morning people were always just like, we're on it. We're nice. We're great to go. But at 1030 when I had a night shift, they were like, we will slash anybody who gets near me. I'm like, I don't, I don't blame you at 1030 at night, but I also don't know why we have such a huge difference. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I, I worked one job at a night shift. I worked, I worked at a, oh gosh, a super eight. I worked at a super eight on the night shift on the border of Indiana and Michigan. So most people at that hour are either truckers Yes, stopping for the night. Uh, that's the majority of the people, and they usually book their room in advance because they're they're pretty organized when when you're a trucker, or yeah. they're the crazy people. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Uh, though talking about when you you mentioned a lot of families are kind of in that the situation of juggling work and children, partners. My current job in mental health, I've changed a lot of jobs in the last six months out of choice, not of any suspicious need for anybody who might be judging. Better opportunities came up, took them. This new position is really interesting. It's with a program that focuses on children who have been diagnosed with quote-unquote severe emotional disturbance. It's not a judgment on the kids or any behavior, but it just pretty much means they, they have a symptom that's causing a lot of challenges in one particular point of life, work, school, home. It's really straightforward. I love one of the uh, services they offer, which is respite and it's or attendant care. And the respite's really great because a lot of the families that I've spoken to in the last month have said, like, I just need minutes to clean. I just need an hour to hang out with my other child. I just need a night to work in a night shift. And it's just an opportunity for even the kiddo who is feeling the same levels of stress being trapped in their house to get out and go do something else with somebody who they haven't seen seven days a week, all hours. And it really can help a household. And this pandemic has really shown how needed that is. And I'm so looking forward to when things are safe and people can go off and take healthy non-institutional breaks from (laughs) 
their families. But yeah. And that's part of the frustrating thing. It's like, you know, we have other family that are treating this like it's no big deal. And so they're all kind of hanging out together and we're kind of treated like the ones that are the crazy ones for trying to be safe and, you know, wear our masks and do everything that's suggested. And so we're extra isolated because of that, because even the family that's near us, we can't see because they're not being safe. Oh, that's so stressful. My family lives five hours away. That's a drive. Uh, <laughs> it is a drive, and it is a convenient excuse to not really visit. I was going to say, um, and that's also a convenient excuse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I One of them is a doctor, and she does work with some patients who test positive for COVID, unfortunately. So she has had quite a few exposures. And it was really stressful at the start. She is a psychiatrist and has worked in inpatient facilities at the start of it. And it was very nerve wracking because no one really had good policies in place at the time, you know, good testing measures, good preventative measures that didn't exist really in March and April, even for hospitals where when she was at an inpatient facility. And we think she tested positive at that time. She had a lot of symptoms, but they weren't really advocating for testing now. Or then now, if somebody's exposed, they get to quarantine and test and take the appropriate safety measures. But for the first two, three months, the hospital was pretty much like, why don't we just pretend you weren't exposed? <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> why would you do that? Yeah. And, yeah. But I, the reality then later set in and everyone was like, okay, <laughs> everyone has to be really, really safe, please. Like, let's not risk this anymore. But uh, so my family is also not being fully safe, some of which is in their control, most isn't. Uh, but I have the nice excuse of a day drive. <laughs> not I was going to say, you've got enough. such a nice long drive as a good excuse. <laughs> yes, it's it's really great. It's it's sad, but it's also really great. <laughs> I don't have to deal with it. But uh, So I have to ask this question uh, because this is a comics-related podcast. I feel like creators always get asked, why do you write comics? But I really just kind of want to know why did you start reading them? Like, why did you get into comics? Not professionally, but like as a hobby. I started reading comics really late in life. I didn't read them when I was younger. I don't remember uh, particularly being exposed to them. You know, I, I was never brought to any sort of comic book stores as a kid. And I actually think, uh, not to date myself, but I think comic books might still have actually been in, you know, your normal pharmacies and things like that on the news rack at that point. But it just wasn't some other than the Sunday comics. It just wasn't something I read. I was more into kids books. Like I actually read children's picture books, which one could argue is a form of graphic novel until I was probably into my teens. I mean, I was still, you know, reading books that you would read as a teen, but I right. always loved children's picture books. And I didn't start to read comic books until I was already into my 30s and I started to go to comic book conventions and I started to make friends with comic book creators. And so that's when I started to really get into reading them and really enjoying this format and the style of art because, you know, it's it's literature and it's art 
combined. And I love art and I love literature. So it was a nice combination there. Two in one deal. Two in one deal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I come from a family of artists. So it's it's kind of funny that like I came to into it so late because my great uncle is Rudy Nappy and he did all those iconic Nancy Drew and Hardy Boy covers that people uh, had as as kids in their homes growing up. And then he also did Pulp Fiction. I didn't Fiction. even put that together, by the way. I didn't even put that together. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, he did Pulp Fiction. Sorry. Yeah, so, he did, so yeah, he did Pulp Fiction and like, you know, I mean, the sad part is, is like, I never really got to spend a lot of time with him growing up because he had already, you know, moved out of the state. And mm-hmm. so, but I grew up with nothing but stories of him. Like, I heard nothing about how awesome he, you know, he was an awesome person. He was like super nice. Like, you know, my dad was like super close to him growing up because it was his uncle. And I have, I have original pieces by him up on my walls in my house, you know, so even though I didn't get to spend his, uh, t- time with him the way I wish I had, you know, listening to all the stories about how awesome he was growing up, I definitely feel like a connection to him anyway, because I've heard all these awesome stories about him growing up. So, and you know, my dad's a graphic artist. My mom was always in the basement painting stuff too. So it was just like, they would take me to museums constantly as a child. You know, we always went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan on a regular basis or other museums. So it just, it always felt like I was immersed in the art world. Yeah, so, you were primed for this. You yeah, were- and then working in film yeah. and TV is such a great training ground for doing comic books, even though, you know, I've, I've had this comment on a couple of podcasts where people are like, well, like, people are usually trying to go the opposite way. They're trying to go from comics into TV and I'm going from TV into comics. But I actually feel like my TV training is is what's helped me be able to even tackle this because, you know, I focused on editing in high school and in college. Like that was my focus was I thought I was become going to become an editor. And I feel like you know, and then I worked in writing, you know, I was a script coordinator for over a decade in film and TV. And I think all of that stuff helped me with pacing and helped me with, you know, the visuals of like how to cut the comic together, so to speak. Cause it's like, you're taking yeah. a film and you're just, you're picking out the pieces that are going to tell the story. I think you can tell that from like, as a, as a reader who has no experience working in the comics industry or film industry, social services doesn't quite lend you to those skills. I can still tell, I think, when someone has experience with maybe storyboarding or any of that kind of editing or pacing feel. It just, the books feel different. Your book had phenomenal pacing with it and very action-packed and the story was engaging and very, the moments were important and impactful. Skyward also had that too. And I know, you know, that author has a lot of TV experience and nothing to say against, this isn't a critique against people who started in comics. It just has a different vibe and you can feel it and it's a good vibe. It's just a different way to tell the story and it's, it's an appreciated way. I like it. Yeah. So like the first issue, what I felt what I was trying to do was have almost a complete story on each page, like a beginning, middle and end on each page. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do that as much in the subsequent issues, a, because it's, it's actually incredibly hard to do that. <laughs> I bet. Um, <laughs> and then also I had like, you know, I had nothing but time on my hands when I was doing the first issue, you know, the only 
the only clock on the wall was me. So uh, the first issue was something that had a lot of eyes on it before it even went to be drawn. And, you know, it was crafted in a comic book writing class. And then it was further honed when I, you know, met up with Vince Hernandez, and he agreed to come on to help me out with it. And so it just it had all these like, people that had gone through and then issue two forward hasn't had as as many hands on it. So it's just been me trying to make sure that I'm living up to the potential that I did with the other two issues. And based on the feedback I'm getting, I've continued to do it at that same high level. But it definitely like with every issue, I'm always like, did I just totally mess this up? <laughs> is it is it good enough? It hasn't been workshopped. Am I sure it's okay? But everyone keeps telling me that it's it's okay. So <laughs> I'm trying hey. to let my anxiety get the better of me. No, that's totally fair. I still think it's reasonable to always ask those questions, though, right? Yeah. You're you're putting a product out there, and you're yeah, like, "Am exactly. I doing the best?" Exactly. Yeah, which is why I'm so glad that like my comic book uh, writing class guys that I'm I still keep in touch with. They read everything, so at the very least, oh, everything awesome. is workshopped with them. So it's like a smaller workshop. <laughs> yeah, it's still that's super supportive. Like I I love hearing. Oh my God, the best part about being on Twitter and seeing you and other content creators is like how supportive the community tries to be for itself. Cause I think there's like the, a bit of notoriety where it used to be pretty toxic. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but I love when people talk about how supportive their groups are. Do you feel okay kind of talking about the community you've built in comics? Yeah, I've I feel like I've been actually really super fortunate with the community that I built because it all came out of the comic book writing classes I took at Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles, and it's just grown since then with everyone that I've met mainly at this point online, but also at conventions. You know, I used to meet and become friendly with creators through conventions, and then now it's I've met and become friendly with creators through Kickstarter. Kickstarter is almost like the new convention. Because there's always something new coming out. And, you know, if you, especially if you are cross promoting with another creator, you become friendly with them. I like the idea of Kickstarter as the new convention. Like, that's, I think, a great way to push it. I also can see it even with board games as a board game nerd uh, who, frequent, who frequented Gen Con a lot. you definitely a lot of the kickstarters were geared towards a gen con release so backers could pick board games up at the same time as a consumer that's really daunting because there's so many great creators put out so many great things yeah my credit card is uh, (laughs) i'm like do i need the hard copy i'm like oh but i really want the hard copy so it's like i have to it's like a fight like do i do i do the hard copy on this one or do i just do digital uh my credit card (laughs) i feel bad for my mailbox because i forget when i've ordered things (laughs) so i just open it and there's like two packages kind of crammed in there by the poor post office worker who yeah like, yeah that's usually my husband he's like he's like did you back another kickstarter he's like how many are you backing out of my housemate and i i'm the only one with the mail key so he cannot judge me oh there you go there you go it's <laughs> it feels weird like i have a little bit too much authority but at the same time like things that i ordered don't have to go through his you know assessment like it's right <laughs> It's my secret. <laughs> secret. <laughs> I got another book. Woo-hoo-hoo. Okay. 
So you said your husband plays video games. He, well, he, he used to before we had a child, but yes, he was a religious video game player. He has, and he only plays on his computer. He's not a console gamer. He's, okay. He's a devoted computer gamer. So. Okay. Well, I was going to try to ask you about PC versus consoles, but I think your husband answered the question. Not, not I'm not saying like he controls your feelings when it comes to that, but it sounds like well what we did before Wyatt we used to do this game together all the time called don't starve Ooh, have you done it because I love this game it's amazing and you can play it with more than one person so what he would do in our old apartment was his setup for his work and his home computers were all at this one desk but we could connect them it was close enough to our tv in our living room because it was all just big one big room Um, And then so we could just put Don't Starve up and he has a special uh, controller that works with his computer that we would use to Don't Starve on the TV. So it was almost like having the best of both worlds because it was a computer game on our TV. That's awesome. That is awesome. So yeah, okay. So you play. You play. Don't starve. Yeah, That's yeah. Been on I used my to play. I used to play years. a lot. I did like Mario Brothers growing up and all that sort of thing. Um, don't starve is one of the only games like I don't get. I'm one of those gamers that I get really angry when things don't go well. So can relate. <laughs> yeah. So don't starve is one of those games I can play without getting really angry, especially once I realized what the stakes of the games were. Otherwise, I used to just watch. Joe, uh, play, man, I'm blanking on, there's this one game he used to play all the time. And I think it actually sort of influenced Duplicant 2. It's the one where it's like, it's got this 1950s vibe and the people come out of like these pods underground to figure out what's going on in the world. Uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of the game. I want to say Bioshock, but I don't... Not Bioshock. Yeah, let's see. It's like it had like New Vegas in one episode where they had dog meat. Fallout. Fallout, yes, thank you. Yeah, I could just watch him play Fallout because it was such an engaging game. Oh, that game is so good. And so I would just watch him play it. Yeah. And so like when we got married, we had one of the songs from Fallout is the song I walked down the aisle to. It was a, a Louis Armstrong song. And so he's up there waiting for me. (laughs) He's up there like waiting for me as I'm walking down the aisle of the song. And he's like repeating what the game says, like war, war never changes. (laughs) (laughs) And the, and the woman who was marrying us was like, what are you doing? Stop it right now. (laughs) That is amazing. I love that. He quoted that. Yeah. He's Uh. like up there. Like as as my father's like walking me down the aisle, I couldn't hear it, of course. And I knew he was going to do it because like, you know, I knew it was a song from the game, but he was just like muttering (laughs) to himself about it. But the, you know, the pastor could hear him because she's standing right next to him. (laughs) I really hope there's a picture of her just like side eyeing him. Like what the heck is happening? Uh. It probably is because, you know, I took all the music for our wedding from Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> i love that movie <laughs> that's amazing uh you know though it would have been really great since ron perlman i think does the intro for fallout 3 at least mm-hmm. if, gosh like now i have this fantasy of like the intro the, to the march or whatever is ron perlman making the fallout speech but like changing <laughs> it to marriage yeah marriage yep. cha- you know like just substituting marriage for war and i mean it'd be a really dark 
speech, but kind of hilarious as yeah, it talk kind of, about it the world on fire. We are so I think it, oh, I think it works. <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. That's a good fact to learn. Yeah. Now I know this. That's awesome. <laughs> That is awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I hope everybody picks up Duplicant in April. Did I get that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. April 7th uh, is when the first issue will be in stores, and we're on Kickstarter till March 4th, I think. (laughs) It's March sometime that it ends, early March. (laughs) And can they just find it under Duplicant? Yeah, if they just do a search for duplicate on Kickstarter, it'll come up that way. And then the order code, if they want to get the the first issue in stores, is FEB two one one five zero eight. All right. Hopefully, Jess, when she's editing this, will also write that down so that we can type it out in the description because I did not write it down as you said that. <laughs> um, Mabi, pressure's on, Jess. Step it up. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we'll hopefully drop a link to the duplicate Kickstarter whenever we get this episode up and get that order code in there too. Cause I would love to see people reading and backing this. That would be great. All right. <laughs> Kickstarter is the only reason this book is able to continue. The backers are what make the book happen now. So I'm extra, extra grateful to them for helping me continue fund this journey. Well, I certainly hope that they cherish that statement. Just cut that sound clip out and we'll just like, (laughs) heck yeah, uh, to the backers. All right, everybody. Again, thanks for joining us here. You'll hear me next time. If you see me, that's weird. But until then, bye. Bye. Both Jess and I, we struggle with sitting for an hour and listening to people talk. And I'm going to project that onto other people. (laughs) 